Section 27 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Fourth Decade, A.D. 1357 to 1367. Chapter 1, From the Battle of Poitiers to the Death of King John, Part 1. King John had remained in easy captivity with the Black Prince in the Abbey of St. Andrews at Bordeaux till the spring of 1357, when they sailed for England. The Regent of France, Charles, Duke of Normandy, now the Dauphin, had in the meantime again summoned the States General of the Languedoc to meet at Paris to take into consideration the state of the kingdom. It was not too soon. The exchequer was empty, the coinage debased, the army utterly demoralized, and respect for government and authority at an end. Multitudes of disbanded soldiers formed themselves into companies, living by the open plunder of those who were not strong enough to defend themselves, and over all the country brooded the shadow of national defeat and shame. The nobles taken prisoners at Poitiers and released on parole turned to their estates to find the means of paying their ransoms, which equaled and in many cases exceeded half the selling value of the land, had sale been possible. But the Jews and other wealthy foreign money-dealers who might have come forward as purchasers or mortgagees had all been banished from France, and nothing was left for it but to make the miserable tenants yield up their little hoards, if they had any, or to compel them to beg, borrow, or steal the money for the release of their lords, whom they had always hated as selfish and oppressive masters, and now despised as cowards and traitors to their country. The serfs were ordered to find the money by a certain day, and in case of default they were put to the torture and their goods and chattels seized and carried off. It was the heartless jest in the mouths of the unworthy gentlemen of France, Jacques Bonhomme has a good broad back. He must bear the burden. Jacques will not pull out his purse till you beat him, but Jacques will pull out his purse soon enough when you do. The unfortunate peasantry were hunted down like vermin and put to cruel deaths. All who escaped fell into the clutches of the companies, who stripped naked those to whom the lords had left a shirt tormented and mutilated young children as well as men and women, and robbed the last of all that was left them when money, clothing, and household goods were gone. Multitudes of these unhappy beings took refuge at night-time, huddled together with their families and their flocks, and all that they could save, on the islands in the Loire, or on rafts moored out of reach of the banks of the river. Others dug ditches round their villages and placed sentinels in the church towers to give the alarm on the appearance of an armed man. But all these precautions only whetted the excitement of the chase and the eagerness of the man-hunters to get at their prey. These companies, though they fought and plundered on their own account, brought the English into great odium and discredit. One of them, which infested the district between the Seine and the Loire, was commanded by a Welshman, another by an Englishman, Sir Robert Knowles, who afterwards, as will be seen, distinguished himself in legitimate warfare. 
a third was commanded by Arnold de Servol, a liegeman of King Edward and one of the heroes of Poitiers, of whom we shall hear again. He was surnamed the Archpriest, on account of a benefice which he held. But his wild and undutiful doings in the neighborhood of Avignon sadly disturbed the mind of the pontiff at the head of the church. Meanwhile, Charles, the regent, and the other royal and noble fugitives of Poitiers, so far from bowing their heads in sympathy with the miseries of their country, were vying with each other in ostentatious luxury and extravagance under the indignant eyes of Paris. Fresh taxes were daily imposed, and the coinage debased to the extent of 600%. The States-General met at the end of 1356 and went to work in the spirit of sobered and earnest but not hopeless men. Rejecting all the dishonored scions of the royalty, they chose Charles of Blois as their nominal president. But the real leader of the assembly was Etienne Marcel, the provost of the merchants. The defenseless state of Paris was the first anxiety, and immediate steps were taken under the auspices of Marcel to fortify the town and train the citizens to the use of arms. Resolutions were unanimously passed that the king's ministers should be replaced by a council to be chosen by the states, and that the king of Navarre should, for the good of the kingdom, be released from captivity. The Dauphin had no intention of acquiescing in these demands. He showed considerable address in persuading the states to adjourn before matters came to a crisis, and summoned the parliament of the Languedoc, the southern provinces, which indeed promised a liberal subsidy for the defense of the country, but insisted no less on a reform in the administration. They claimed to vest the right of expending the monies raised by taxation in commissioners appointed by themselves, to assemble and dissolve when they thought proper, and to withhold supplies altogether if the coinage were again tampered with. Lastly, they prohibited all persons of what degree soever from wearing silver ornaments, pearls and rich furs, and the minstrels and jonglers from exercising their gay callings for the space of twelve months while the country was in mourning and her king a captive in a foreign land. Meanwhile, Philip of Navarre, indignant at the prolonged detention of his brother, took up his headquarters at Evreux, and gathered round him the partisans of Navarre, threatening the capital with an attack from without, while an insurrection was ripening within the walls of Paris, and exasperated citizens paraded the streets in arms. It was under these circumstances that the states again assembled. They repeated their former demands in a more peremptory tone, and attempted to place the government, as it were, in commission, by nominating a council of thirty-six who became virtually the executive. But Charles, whom his countrymen called the wise, though in England the epithet would probably have taken a different turn, fortified by orders from the king his father, forbidding all men to obey the decrees of the states, would probably have contrived to hold his own in defiance of the assembly, had not the revolution suddenly taken a new form with which his timid and crafty genius was less competent to deal. 
Marcel, who up to this time had been working manfully and loyally in the interest of the government and the country, convinced at length that all attempts to induce or compel the Dauphin to act honestly would be unavailing, determined in 1358, in an evil hour, to baptize the cause of the people in blood. He and his associates had adopted a red and blue striped cap as the badge of their fraternity, and on a certain morning the tocsin sounded from the towers of Notre-Dame, and the streets surrounding the Louvre where the Dauphin had entrenched himself were soon densely filled with a fluctuating sea of party-colored caps. Marcel entered the palace unopposed at the head of three thousand men, for Charles gave himself out as the friend of the people, and confronting the duke, accused him of taking no part in the defense of the country. The duke retorted bitterly that to defend the country was the business of those who received its revenues. More angry words followed, and at length, Marcel, turning to the striped caps who had entered with him, cried out, Do that for which you came. Two French marshals, the confidential advisers of the duke, were seized and massacred upon the spot, and he himself was only too glad to escape through the throng under Marcel's protection in the disguise of a revolutionist with a party-colored bonnet on his head. But Marcel, who ought to have known that a revolution begun with blood could not be carried on with rose-water, now fell into the fatal error of allowing the duke, who thirsted for revenge, to leave Paris and preside at the assembly of the southern states. Charles found them exasperated at the assassination of the marshals, and quite ready to support him in retaliating upon its authors. News reached Marcel that the Duke was marching upon Paris. He first attempted, in a noble and eloquent letter which has been preserved, to dissuade him from such a course. But finding his remonstrances unavailing, he seized upon the Louvre and expelled the royal garrison pulled down the houses built against the ramparts, threw chains across the river, and prepared to stand a siege. But a new and more formidable danger now arose, in presence of which both factions stood aghast. The Jacquerie had begun. This outbreak exhibiting, as it were, in a typical form, the dangers of oppression pushed to extremes, and the excesses of which a mob will be guilty, when they are so unfortunate as to become for a time their own masters, has been used to point the moral of many a diatribe, now against the tyranny alleged to be inherent in aristocracies, now against the savage ferocity and the destructive instincts of the masses when not kept under habitual and watchful repression. But in truth, the movement was of so exceptional a character that it possesses for us little more than a historical interest, for it is almost inconceivable that such a combination of circumstances could exist in the Europe of our day. De Jacquerie, doubtless, had some points of resemblance, but very many of dissimilarity, with the great French Revolution of the 18th century. It was like that a national uprising against the tyranny and selfishness of the aristocracy, but it differed from it in being a blind outbreak of fury, without political objects, without intelligent leaders, and without permanent results. 
it had nothing about it of the religious exaltation of the sanguinary Pastoureau, who, fifty years before, swarmed over France and offered up all Jews and heretics as a holocaust to God. The Jacquerie had not, like them, any expectation of the advent of the reign of justice. They had not even a concerted scheme of emancipating themselves. The movement was, as has been well observed, one of those sympathetic acts which puts on the appearance of organized combination. It exhibited the spectacle of a whole population suddenly possessed with the same devil of bloodthirstiness as a Javanese fanatic when running amok. It is perhaps not very difficult to account for the peculiar ferocity of these insurrections upon French soil. The spirit of English legislation, even at a time when all English legislators belonged to the aristocratic class, was marked by an especial tenderness and consideration for the poor, and however much the English nobles may have oppressed their serfs by tallage, forced labor, and personal violence, they do not seem at any time to have habitually insulted and derided their inferiors in station with the class pride and brutal scorn which characterized the French nobility. A few peasants in the neighborhood of Clermont, armed with knives and bludgeons, broke into a chateau, set it on fire, and murdered the inmates. Then, like a wild beast that has tasted blood, the mob, daily growing in numbers and in ferocity, swarmed round, broke into and gutted castle after castle, from the battlements and loop-told windows of which the lords had looked down in indifference or derision, while the defenseless cottages of their dependents were sacked and pillaged by the companies. Death to the gentlemen was the watchword of this delirious revolt, which spread like wildfire through France, for its cry for vengeance found an echo in the heart of every peasant in the land. Their numbers soon swelled to one hundred thousand men, and Marcel thought it prudent to seem to make a common cause with them, to some extent, in the hope of mitigating or restraining their ferocity. The first check which the outbreak met with was at Meaux. The Dauphin had seized upon this city in order to cut off the supplies of the Seine from Paris, and had connected and strengthened the buildings enclosing the marketplace, which became thereby one huge fortress. Thither his duchess had fled for safety, and with her three hundred of the noblest ladies of France. Now the royal garrison at Meaux had oppressed the citizens till they could no longer bear their insolence and exactions, and in despair of relief from any other quarter, the inhabitants called in the Jacques to their aid, and admitted within the city some ten thousand half-armed, half-starved, and half-maddened ruffians, along with a troop of Parisians dispatched with the best intentions, but with very doubtful wisdom by Marcel. The situation of the poor ladies was now critical in the extreme. They had nothing to hope for from the mercy of their assailants, and the garrison was too weak to hold out long against such overwhelming numbers. But help came from an unexpected quarter. The Captal de Bouche and Gaston de Foix, a gallant knight of Gascony surnamed Phoebus for his youthful beauty, were returning with one hundred lances from a crusade against the pagans in Prussia, and learned in passing through Chalon that an adventure lay ready to their hands, 
an adventure which combined every element of attractiveness to knightly spirits, a suzerain's authority outraged, fair ladies in danger, plebeian insolence to be avenged, and desperate odds against the avengers. They rode scarce drawing rein to mow, fought their way to the entrance of the marketplace, were admitted through its gates, and forming within, again threw them open and poured forth an iron stream into the midst of the half-defenseless rioters, and slaughtered them like sheep. The miserable wretches fought desperately for their lives, but a few only in the outskirts escaped the swords and spears of the men-at-arms. At about the same time a sanguinary massacre of the Jacques took place in Normandy under the orders of the King of Navarre, and the fugitives from the slaughter carried the news into all parts of the country. Taking advantage of the panic caused by these reverses, the gentry plucked up courage, and sallying forth with their armed retainers from the towns in which they had found refuge, assumed the offensive in their turn, and inflicted such a murderous retaliation on the unfortunate peasantry, now awakening, dizzy and dispirited, after their debauch of blood, that to use the words of an old French chronicler, it needed not the English to destroy the country, for in truth the English, enemies of the kingdom, could not have done what the nobles did. The result of the whole was that the peasantry of France sunk down into mere abject servitude, misery, and despair. But this fearful outbreak, so disastrous to France, scarcely affected after the first moment the relations of the leaders of political parties whose intrigues went on unchecked through the midst of the national agony. We left the Dauphin advancing on Paris with an army from the south, and Provost Marcel in possession of the city, and fortifying it against impending siege. The recent measures of the latter, whether well-intentioned or not, had unfortunately identified him with the foes of order. Six months before this date, backed by the express opinion of the States-General, he had entered the royal prison of the Louvre and released the King of Navarre. The liberated sovereign had been received with acclamations by the people to whom he declared that if he chose to stand upon his rights, he could show a claim to the throne of France better than that of King Edward of England. At that time, however, it did not suit Marcel's purpose to throw down the gauntlet to the regent representative of the reigning dynasty, but now seeing that he had gone too far to retreat, he took a step fatal to his own influence and the cause which he had at heart, by calling in and appointing Captain-General of Paris as a step to a still higher dignity, the King of Navarre, whose recent massacre of the Jacques had alienated from him the sympathies of the popular party while at the same time the misguided provost invoked the aid of the companies, justly regarded as the scourge of France and the common enemies of mankind. The King of Navarre, as was to have been expected, betrayed his associates' intentions and made an offer to the Dauphin to abandon Paris to its fate and to give up Marcel and his friends to vengeance the unpopularity of that ill-advised but able and single-minded patriot, whose sole object throughout 
seems to have been to deliver his countrymen from bad government and oppression, was completed by an unfortunate accident. A party of brigands in Marcel's pay, returning to Paris, had set fire to a homestead not far distant from the Port Saint-Martin. The angry citizens saw the conflagration from the walls of Paris, and as soon as the troops entered the gates, fell upon and massacred them, and seized the captain of the band, who had been dining at the Hôtel de Nel, along with Charles of Navarre. That king then withdrew to Saint-Denis, where the number of his forces and his hostile attitude so alarmed the citizens of Paris, that they compelled Marcel to write to the Dauphin, entreating him to enter Paris and protect them against the Navarrese. That astute prince, however, well knowing that discord within the city was his best ally, answered that he would never set foot in Paris as long as the murderer of the marshals was alive. And now Marcel, abandoned by all and with the ground trembling under his feet, determined on the desperate and treasonous step of introducing the King of Navarre at the head of a body of troops into Paris by night and proclaiming him King of France. The plot was discovered, and when Marcel rode up to the gates to give admittance to the Navarrese, the royalist governor of that quarter of the city mounted his horse, and shouting Montjoie Saint-Denis for the king and the duke, galloped round to raise the people. A throng gathered about, and there arose a fierce and angry strife of tongues, in the heat of which the unhappy Marcel was struck down and murdered, with the fatal evidence of guilt, the keys of the city, in his hand. End of section 27